0: Welcome everyone to a special edition of Clerically Speaking. I'm Father Harris, and with me today we have a special guest. This is a first. This is a kind of a first of a format for us in some ways. It's going to be really awesome. We have Doctor uh, Larry Chap. So welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, thank you. I've been a long time listener to your podcast, so it was a great thrill to get the invitation.
0: And, and as I was telling you just before we were recording, just for people to know, like I, I, I still remember. Uh, I think it was like a, an advanced course in theology of revelation or something like that. That. Uh, Uh, we read a lot of, when it it was one of your books, I'm trying to remember which one it was, but I remember like our prof gave us one of your books for, for one of our classes. And, uh, it was, it's uh, like, I've known who you are for a long time. So when I got an email from your wife, I think it was last year, just thanking us for the podcast. I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) So it's, uh, and then, and then (laughs) you started your blog and then we've been keeping in touch as best as I can. Sometimes I'm sometimes horrible with my email, but I um, am too.
1: I am too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's just like it's, it's, overwhelming, it's overwhelming
0: sometimes. So, you know, um, why don't we start off just for those who don't know who you are, uh, what your life, a bit of your life story is and, and what you're doing now. It might okay. be helpful for those who might not know who you are.
1: Yeah. Okay. Very briefly, I, I was born in the great Cornusker state of Nebraska. I was raised in Lincoln, Nebraska. And, uh, you know, a very blue collar boy. My dad was a fireman and all that kind of stuff. So a very Midwestern blue collar heart and, and soul which is probably why I was a halfway decent teacher of undergraduates, because, you know, there's, there's not an elitist bone in my body and, and that's the way I was raised. I eventually went to seminary. I was in seminary for seven years, minor uh-huh. and major, and uh, finally discerned that I wasn't called to the priesthood at all. Uh, and I was really called to the academic life. And, and so after leaving seminary, I went to Fordham and got my doctorate at Fordham, finished that in 1994. And was very uh did it on Balthazar. And I was very fortunate, one of the fortunate ones, I got a job right away uh, wow. at De- DeSales University in the Lehigh Valley. At that time it was called Allentown College. Very small, sort of out of the way place, but hey, a job is a job. You know, you're a white male conservative Catholic who did a dissertation on Balthazar. You don't you don't get to be picky at all. Yeah, exactly. So I was exactly. <laughs> I was happy to be employed. I was I taught there and it was just undergraduate teaching, uh, for which I love. I love teaching undergraduates. I was mm-hmm. good at it, I enjoyed it, I did it for 20 years. But one of the things that I taught a lot about was Catholic social teaching and uh, Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker Movement. And uh, after a while, and my, and my wife was the same way, we just started to discern independent of each other Uh, that God was calling us to do something a little more radical, a little more. We were living very comfortable bourgeois suburban (laughs) lives. We had a nice Cape Cod house up in the woods and dinners out at nice restaurants, traveling to Rome a lot and stuff. And that was all great, you know, students (laughs) at the house a lot. But still, still there was something lacking. I wanted something deeper. And so with a former student of both of ours, Father John Gribowicz, he's a priest now of Brooklyn, heading off to the monastery. Uh, at Genesee now. But anyway, he's the co owner of our farm. We bought it, all three of us together, a Catholic wow. worker farm. We started a Catholic worker farm uh, northwest of Wilkes Bear, Pennsylvania, in Harvey's Lake, Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, we grow food, we raise animals, all that kind of stuff. But more important than that is we we engage in a lot of hospitality, people coming over and we sit and we, we discuss, you know, the, the vision of Dorothy Day, the vision of the farm, the vision of the agrarian lifestyle, you know, the whole back to the land kind of vision in a Catholic register. And so that's what we're doing now. And then starting last year, you know, I just felt like after all of these conversations I was having with all of these people, and they would say to me, well, geez, we, where, where can we read more about this? And I thought, you know what? I need to start a blog. I, I, mm-hmm. I there's, there's a need for, in a sense, I don't wanna say my perspective, but you know, I do have a kind of unique perspective. I've been combining the philosophy of Dorothy Day with Ray Sorsky's theology, Balthazar's theology. Uh, there aren't a lot of people doing that, and, and what it gives me in my blog, I think, is a uh, a vision that is neither right nor left. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that's kind of what people uh, appreciate uh, about the blog.
0: That's really interesting. A few questions there, actually, because you know when I went to seminary, so I went to seminary as as often someone does in their mid twenties, very idealistic. Very yes. certain of what they think the church should be, and uh, and so on and so forth. And I think that's kind of common with a guy going into seminary. And it's 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 part of the stages of life. And when I was in my first year of seminary, our, our seminary, I was really blessed. Like actually, I had a really great experience. of Seminary. Our seminary was solid. It was academically rigorous. Like most of our classes, we had to do twenty-page papers. Wow. Um, yeah. Because our our professor said, like, listen, not all you're going to be theologians, but you need to engage theologically with things so that you can deal with the subtleties of life, right? And and I really appreciate that. And but our seminary also really appreciated freedom. Like, you yeah. want to go out to two o'clock at night? That's fine. Yeah. Are you going to show up for chapel at six thirty in the morning? And that's how they kind of govern things. But and I look back and I'm like, well, I was really blessed. But and one of the blessings for me in seminary was so our, our school was very communal oriented. What's um, what semin-
1: what seminary was this?
0: That was St. Joseph's Seminary in Edmonton with oh, Newman yeah. Theological College. Um, yeah. um so our um one of our professors did um his doctorate on Balthazar and and and, uh, and got to meet him and Dulubak and stuff like that back in the day and, and and a lot of our formation team also did stuff on the communal guy. So it was a very communal heavy school uh, and sometimes maybe too much like it's a good t- Get exposed to the rest of the tradition, and and for me too, it was also interesting talking to American seminaries how big Rahner has been in the U.S. for such a long time. I was like, really? I barely read him until my advanced classes. But you know, but it was just interesting to me hearing this because like I was a shock that people hadn't read Balthasar in seminary. But for me, like so like discovering that tradition in my first year, I read um I read um, Boersma's book on Nouvelle Theology and Sacramental Ontology. I don't That's know great, if you, you read great. Oh yeah, it's a great book so I read that my first year and it just changed everything for me. And uh, it opened the, it opened my eyes to seeing the the beauty of the church's tradition. Um, but what was it? And so like it really made me fall in love with Balthazar and Dulu back and those guys. And yeah. it's what helped me lead me to eventually doing my master's on, on Londell. Um But, what was it that attracted you to Balthazar? Because to my understanding, at least from what my formation team were saying, it wasn't until like later on that a lot of stuff was starting to happen theologically in, in yeah. doctorates on Balthazar. Um, so you must have been kind of unique at the time saying, I want to do something on Balthazar. What like what <laughs> oh, how was that received? And what and, and and what was that how and what is it that attracted you to him?
1: Well, it's a it's a good story. I mean, I went to minor seminary, as I said, in northern Kentucky, at a seminary that's no longer there at St. Pius the Tenth Diocese of Covington. And it was a very conservative this was for the Diocese of Lincoln that I was studying, and it was a very conservative traditional uh philosophy formation. So we were reading all of the neo-scholastic manuals and that sort of thing. And I was a fire-breathing conservative reading The Wanderer, which was the Taylor Marshall publication of its day, you know, and I was a heresy hunting kind of the liberals are the problem, which they are, but that's a different story. But uh, so, (laughs) but over time I gradually got really dissatisfied with the neo-scholastic. First off, it was boring. Oh my goodness. It was boring to read. And then I I was reading a little modern philosophy and realizing I'm not, these guys aren't really addressing any of these issues. And I, I went to my spiritual director, Father Anton Morgenroth, and he was a convert from Judaism. He was a German who fled Germany because of Hitler back in the day. And he had known Balthazar, and he was a big resource Montcomunio guy. And I was talking to him about how frustrated I was and so on. And he just sat there and listened. He was a great big hefty guy. And I said, okay, I'm done. I started to leave. And he says, wait one minute. And I was standing by the door and he walked to his bookshelf and he pulled off uh, Love Alone by Balthazar, a little Mm -hmm. tiny book. And he literally threw it across the room at me and I caught it. And he goes, here, read this. It will make you less stupid. And and, uh, so I took it to my room and, you know, I was an intellectual nerd geek. And and I, of course, sat there and read the whole thing. And my eyes were open. And what attracted me to it was how orthodox it was, how traditional it was, how rooted in the tradition it was, but in this expansive way that went way beyond the categories of neo-scholasticism. It was very personalist, Trinitarian, Christological, scriptural, patristic, all the things the neo-scholastics weren't. And I suddenly realized this guy is engaging this broader philosophical and theological world that I was aching to know about. And then I started reading De Lubac and and Guardini and Bouyer and Pieper and Marcel and Gilson and Maritain. And, oh, you know, I was hooked. I was a bona fide racehorse mount guy. Then I got to Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg, Maryland for major seminary. And it was not really very academically rigorous at the time. Uh, It was was a kind of... um, was a sort of watered down uh, but in a fairly conservative way because the mount was a fairly conservative place but it was very non-rigorous and my formation really intellectually wasn't really put much I was pretty much an autodidact I just kept reading what I wanted to read mm-hmm. and then when I left I went to Fordham which was extremely Runarian, unbelievably Runarian, and I ran into nothing but resistance uh, mm-hmm. th- that when I was in fact the very first paper i wrote in a course on grace for a jesuit i i wrote it on i have used some of balthazar's books and uh he called me into his office and said this paper is a fail and i said well, why is it a fail because because it's on balthazar he goes if you want to stay in this program you may not write on balthazar ever again and uh, uh yeah no wow. i did i did because yeah. other <laughs> other professors there encouraged me to uh, but that was my first uh, introduction to it. Then I went to write a dissertation on Balthazar with a professor that was open to Balthazar, but I didn't know much about him. So they brought on board Father Edward Oakes, the late great Ed Oakes, mm-hmm. who was at NYU mm-hmm. at the time. And uh, he became the sort of de facto dissertation director. And that was mm-hmm. probably actually the book that you read, which was my dissertation on Balthazar's theology of revelation. Yeah, I think uh, that was it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, yeah, no, that's, and that's you know, that's interesting. Um and I think that was the thing for me, too, when I read it I was reading um, something by Tracy Roland last night, her book on Benedict the 16th. And um, it's actually it's been good for me. It's actually been really uh, it's really been focusing my own thesis research. She says that the Ratzinger brings this one quote up in principles of Catholic theology a lot, that the biggest problem we have today is the mediation of history within ontology. I love that phrase because for people like Ratzinger and Balthasar, they're trying to deal heavily with these philosophers like Heidegger and Hegel and and Nietzsche and all this stuff because they recognize the deep influence these people have had And that if the church is going to be credible in the world today, she needs to take these things seriously. And and it's something that I I always found boring and dry about kind of that neo-scholastic tradition. Um, It's not to say that there isn't, fruit there too but it was it was actually oh I read this great quote about Ratzinger when he was in seminary he was at a lecture on the and they're looking about the they're learning about how God is the sumum bonum and he leaned over to Alfred Leppel and he said but the sumum bonum didn't need a mother you know like it was it was his (laughs) little critique about the lack of like this over essentialist view of theology without this kind of personalist uh, role or the re, the role of the concrete within theology and, and it really has helped me really believe like it's just really helped me embe- embrace these guys so it's uh well, yeah, Nick Rot- yeah yeah, good.
1: Rotzinger wrote his dissertation on Bonaventure's theology of history. I mean, Aquinas yeah. did not have a theology of history for all of his merits he didn't, but Bonaventure did and and uh, yeah, and that has been one of both and Rotzinger's and the entire race Osmont school's point is that in some way, Without becoming Hegelians, we have to take mm-hmm. Hegel's insight seriously that, that history matters uh, as such, yeah. precisely as yeah. uh, our, our, our creatureliness working itself out in time. And that has got to be worked into an ontology. And ultimately, only a Trinitarian ontology is going to correct the mistakes that, that Hegel made. Which is why, you know, for example, Archbishop Vigano's claim that Benedict is a Hegelian in one of his letters—he makes that statement—only oh shows gosh. that Archbishop Vigano doesn't understand either Hegel or Ratzinger, right. uh, and and it's it's a complete. It shows that too many in the traditionalist movement who want to return to the neo-scholastics don't get at all why it was so important to go beyond those guys and to incorporate. A relational historical ontology, trinitarian ontology, into our metaphysics. I mean, this is what the Comunio school is all about. It's what the Schindlers have been about, and so on. At the JP2 Institute, it's it's absolutely critical that this be understood.
0: And in some ways, like it seems to me, and maybe this, 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 this is something we can tie in later when we talk about Vatican II, because like I think this is something like that is at the heart of Vatican II, um, and it's its purpose, it's kind of dealing with these questions. But I feel like it's still kind of ignored, and, yes. and that and that we're still trying to deal with these kind of ad intra fights instead of like recognizing the there's a big fire out there, and and and, and, we're, and we're 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 focusing on on minor damage within here instead of like no no there's a and that we need to kind of deal with these concepts of history so that we can actually properly evangelize today because this is the place that whether people rec- this is the thing like and this is why it's important to do theology not that everyone's going to be a theologian but that. It helps bring to mind like what is sometimes not conscious in our minds the, the real problems that are people are acting out of like i always like to say one of the problems i remember in my seminary uh a prof and it's been like a a, a, a phrase that's just hung with me forever now modernism is the denial of mediation yes and right and i was like wow yeah that's it and that's what we're dealing with today. And so, like I always looked at like Vatican II's like sacramental ontology as this place where it's dealing with that problem and saying if the, you see the Church actually kind of fell for that herself, not only within liberalism but even within neo-scholasticism a bit by uh, like Roland breaks to bring out how a lot of neo-scholasticism sometimes was kind of Kantian in its in its form and and, was. and 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 so we need to deal with this problem of mediation, which now has which has to then deal with the problem of history. You can't have mediation without history. It's not possible.
1: That's why I mean, by the way, I would direct your listeners to the latest issue of Communio, which is on mediation. I don't know if you've got your copy yet, but
0: <laughs> I was so I, excited.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am too. It's sitting here waiting to be read, and I just haven't had a chance. But my golly, when I saw that, I was like, yes, yes, yes. But with regard to you know to Vatican II, it's one of the reasons, for example, you know, the the there the old image of the church is a perfect society is in fact a true image in the sense that Christ is the center of the church, she grounds its holiness and sacramental system, and the hierarchy of the church and her sacramental system are, in a sense, expressions of Christ's perfection in that regard, ex opere operato and that sort of thing. But Vatican II, deliberately, therefore, and people miss the significance of this, deliberately went out of its way to add, in terms of our image of the church, not just, not just perfect society but in a sense, uh, a sacramental uh, community, uh, the people of God uh, and a few other images of the, the mystical body, these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And this was the universal just, sacrament of salvation, you know, Yeah, the universal sacrament of salvation. This is not simply rhetorical flourish. This is an attempt to precisely do what we're talking about, to to put the church within the parameters of historical consciousness. And to realize that the church, though a perfect society, is a society still also within the world, sojourning within the world, an extension of the incarnation in time. And you have to supplement the perfect society imagery with an imagery that's going to incorporate the historical dynamism uh, that, that moves the church as well
0: because well, I've done it a lot. Because if you if you focus on this idea of perfect side and almost like an essentialist tone, then what you're doing is you you are negating dealing with experience, dealing with yes. the church's sinfulness, uh, doing what you can to push the idea of of members of the church in, in sinful actions. As we've like, I mean, we're dealing with that right now here in Canada, right? And and we've dealt with this with the sex abuse crisis, and I think part of that comes out of this idea, like that the church can do no wrong. It doesn't allow us to have this, a real kind of um, examination of conscience constantly as a church. Like I I was reading the other day, Ratzinger's reflections on John Paul II's kind of acts of penance at the coming of the new millennium. And he, and it's like, this is the idea. It's like the church is always needing reform because her members, though part of Christ's body, which is perfect are sinful still. Like it's, that's holding that paradox in place and and that this is like this is stuff that the council is really trying. like you know, I know it, it, at least those who listen to the podcast are perhaps um, tired of me saying this, but I, I'm sure you would agree with this. Like I still find like the council just has not been implemented because it hasn't, it hasn't because it's got such a richness. and I, I actually don't think some people don't understand how some of the fruits that we've had in these last 50 years are actually a direct result of the council that we just don't even realize. like I like you've seen stuff like a radical rise in adoration in the church. Yes. That's happened after the council. And I don't think people realize how things like perpetual adoration chapels becoming common in parishes, how not normal that was beforehand, Mm -hmm. stuff like this. And that the council is trying to say like, so we, we, we need to stop seeing it as the enemy and see it as, as the place to root ourselves in, to actually engage properly with the world and to understand ourselves as also rooted in this world.
1: Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I will say one thing, though, to put a, a, maybe a slightly negative spin yeah. on the, the rise of Eucharistic adoration. Someone I know and respect, I, can't, I think it was Peter Kwasniewski, wrote that one of the reasons, and he's a big Latin mass guy, and I don't completely agree with everything he writes. Nevertheless, he raises a very interesting point, which is that perhaps adoration is so popular these days because people do not have the experience of the sacred in the Novus Ordo liturgy that they got from the traditional Latin Mass. I mean, right. in some ways, the traditional Latin Mass was an hour long act of Eucharistic adoration, which is partly right. why it had to be reformed uh, because the Mass isn't adoration, pure and right. simple. Uh, and, and it had become, but anyway, I agree though, uh, that mm. one of the fruits of the council is this regrounding in the Eucharist, especially in Eucharistic adoration. And we, we just have to retrieve these elements of the council. Um, the the uh, perfect society imagery uh, has done, in many ways, great harm when it is used very exclusively. And and I think the council deliberately wanted to get beyond that. And it's,
0: you know, and it's interesting for me too, because, like, uh, I want to ask you about the, the farm here eventually, but since it's kind of naturally gone into Vatican, so we might as well go for it. Because I know this is also the reason you kind of, started your blog, is yes. to try to say, okay, um, let's actually talk realistically about the council. And, and and I actually reflected on this in last week's episode of Clerically Speaking, reading Ratzinger and Lumen Gentium 21 about the order of bishops, and how, like, Ratzinger really goes heavy on this idea that sacramental order is the heart of the church's institution. Yes. And that's really, that's what really we mean by institution. It's, 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 it's interesting, like, people. I don't think people realize how purifying ratzinger is sometimes around the whole notion of institution because he's always trying to he actually says quite often how the church has taken on too much of a worldly form of institution yes um and, and, and like so i remember when i was talking about this episode last week i was just like man like this one little paragraph about the order of bishops and what it means is that everything a bishop has and is and everything that the church is and or a local church is or a particular church is rooted in the sacrament of order of the bishop, and that this is to be the ground by which we order a diocese, and that this then becomes the ground by which we order parishes. And my gosh, we haven't done this.
1: (laughs) No, we haven't. And instead, we have focused on peripheral things like, should the church be more synodal instead of centralized in Rome? And yeah, in some ways, yeah, the rise of Episcopal conference. But this this misses the point that you just made. The, the sacramental nature of the episcopacy, which then trickles down completely to the rest of the church, somewhere about a thousand years ago, bishops began to take on the form of a Renaissance prince yeah. uh, and, and, and started to live like Renaissance princes. And in many ways, that's not still true, uh, right. but in many ways it still is. I mean, I, I don't want to descend into a lot of bishop bashing. There's too much of that these days, but I mean, yeah bishops don't need to live in palaces and they don't need right. them, certainly to have chauffeurs and things like that. And uh, I mean, that's a, I know that's an easy target, but uh, it, it's, it speaks to the, I mean, Balthazar talks about the fact there are two dimensions to the church, the Marian and the Petrine. And of mm-hmm. course the Petrine, the hierarchical element is absolutely central to the sacramental element. But the Marian element, he says is superior, which is the principle of holiness. Mm-hmm. Grounded in Mary's subjectivity, which I had an article in Summer 96 Communio on Mary's subjectivity as the ground of the church's subjectivity as receptive of Christ's headship. Uh, And and this is a concept that Vatican True wanted to resurrect. A a lot of uh, traditionalists are upset that the council did not develop a a, a standalone document on the Virgin Mary, but there was a reason for that. They placed her in the document on the church instead, which is exactly where she belongs. And this was just one more area where the the council is just grossly underappreciated.
0: And and, uh, so it's interesting because my book on, on, on the sacramental worldview understands this and i actually before i talk about the church i talk about mary on purpose for this exact reason right because and it also then starts to integrate because i think part of the reason like even sometimes protestants misunderstand mary is because we separated her from the church
1: yes yes
0: right this she became a kind of goddess in some ways in spiritual form and it did get it did get manipulated but no when you understand her as like because we're all sinners, you and me, we're sinners. <laughs> like, uh, we right. we cannot say yes perfectly to God.
1: We so also sept- there needs yeah. to be
0: sorry. I was just going to say this, but we need someone to say yes for us. With she is the perfect yes of Israel, she is the yes. perfect yes of the Church, which we can't give, and that we she lifts us up into her yes, so that which we and so faith is it is so faith actually has a very strong connection. The whole notion of faith actually has a very strong connection to Mary herself, that it's through her in many ways. So, like, it's interesting, like, some of these things that can seem sometimes as, like, weird sidelines in Marian doctrine, like mediatrix and stuff like this, actually do make sense, but only when you integrate her as, like, the kind of subjective principle of the church.
1: Yes, We not only separated her from the church, we, in so doing, we separated her from Christ. One of the things that was lost on on a popular level is that every Marian doctrine and dogma is ultimately a Christological and ecclesiological dogma and dogma. Theotokos, mother of God, is a Christological dogma rooted in the debates between Nestorius and Cyril and, and so on back in the day. Likewise, with the Immaculate Conception, you referenced her, yes. I mean, Ratzinger's great little tiny book, everyone should read, Daughter Zion, makes this exact point. She is Israel's yes, that God could finally enter into Israel fully and completely, as he always wanted to do, because he finally had the perfect receptive agent, and that was Mary. Uh, And her yes then formed the ground of the incarnation, which is once again a Christological reality.
0: Right. And then, and this is like something again, I appreciate often uh, reference Ratzinger, early because he's all in reading right now, but um, but this is the communal school in general. And so then you start to see that these different doctrines or schools of thought around the church, like around theology, Christology, ecclesiology, all stuff, they're not meant to be separated. They are an integrated whole. You can't like it's something I really appreciate about Ratzinger, it's, and it's which actually makes him hard to write about. Because when he's talking about Christology, he's implying ecclesiology, sacramental theology, Mariology, Trinitarian theology, all this stuff without actually saying it. And and yeah. and but that's what that's what good theology does. It integrates and sees the connection of it all.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, one of the things. Uh, Balthasar and Ratzinger both write, for example, is Aquinas was obviously one of, if not the greatest theologian in the history of the church. And is much to be, I mean, Balthasar quotes Thomas more than anybody else in his his trilogy. Nevertheless, as Balthasar points out, uh, the very structure and form of the Summa as as a series of topics and questions and answers and objections lends itself to kind of that fragmentation uh, Mm -hmm. into various subcategories rather than integration, which is why Balthazar points out one of the most fateful moves in the history of theology was the shift from theology being rooted in the monasteries, like with Bernard of Clairvaux, and shifting then to the universities. Mm-hmm. And when that shift happens, theology sort of loses its int- its, its sort of or- organismic wholeness, uh, mm-hmm. that, which is why when you read race source monk guys like Balthazar and Ratzinger, What you are struck with is how non-scholastic their their formal structure is
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i I remember actually my introduction to theology class i still remember reading theology and spirituality by balthazar for the first time and it it was just such a transforming thing because it also then tells you like you cannot do theology without prayer like theology is going to go off the rails if it doesn't incorporate itself into the spiritual life and that spirituality is like that kind of concrete living of faith that it that it needs that conc- it is it's really all about the incarnation bringing uh the the transcendent and the concrete together always and so you if you want to do theology you have to have the experience of life really with god always at the center point of the encounter to do that proper reflection
1: Oh, absolutely! You know it should be emphasized Aquinas was a deep man of prayer, absolutely. who who ended his life not writing anymore because of some mystical experience that he had, <laughs> uh, and he was like a theological Mozart. You know, who had the whole yeah. in front of him in his own mind even as he wrote. But then those who came after in the commentatorial tradition in the scholastic mm-hmm. tradition were not up to his genius, <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and therefore that's why Balthazar criticizes the structure of the Summa as lending itself to misuse by lesser minds.
0: Right, exactly. He's not saying Thomas is wrong in doing this. No, I not mean, at like, all. And this is the thing, actually, this is something I don't think people realize. Balthazar loves Thomas. Like, oh, he, yeah. Like, like, Balthazar goes on about how, like, Thomas's understanding of the essence existence distinction is one of the most important theological and philosophical distinctions to be yes. made. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a it's a huge discovery that has formed thought for so long. And so, like, he is incredible. He's Balthazar's complaint is really not so much with Thomas, although I still remember reading uh, Yvonne Speyer's uh, Book of All Saints, and her first reflection on Thomas is uh, not particularly uh, favorable. And I I remember reading that Balthazar said to her, You're not being objective, go back and and do it properly this time.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. It's true. Uh, It's true, you know. And uh, I I lost my train of thought here for a bit, but Aquinas Aquinas was a deep man of prayer. Oh, I know it was. I mean, my dissertation was essentially in Volumes 4 and 5 of the Theological Aesthetic of Balthasar, which is where he traces, 4 and 5 in English, uh, where he traces the genealogy, the history of Western metaphysics. And uh, it's, it's, it's just genius. And then he, he gets to the modern period and Heidegger and so on. And he, and he finally then says, the only thing that makes sense of any of this is Thomas's genius idea of the real distinction uh, between essence and existence and that this is the revolution, uh, in philosophy, never, ever to be surpassed.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so bringing us back to the council, like, so you, you talked earlier about why you were inspired to start your blog, which is gaudiumatsbest22.com. If you've never checked it out, please check it out. It's uh, I get my email, I get in my email inbox often early in the morning sometimes. So I, uh, give it as I'm waking up. That's something I'll read if it's in my email inbox. And, uh, um, you know, you've, you talked about like how we, we've talked kind of, we've circled around this idea of the council. So like, why do you think the council was called? And and where do you, like, I know it's a big question, but where do you see us? Um, well, actually let's go with that first. Why, 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 why was the council called? What was so essential for the council to do uh, and what was going on in the church that required it?
1: I think two main things first uh, people think John the 23rd called the council out of the blue. He didn't. Many, many popes before Pope John were, contemplated calling the council, but for various reasons, World War One, World War II, whatever, it wasn't the right time. And the reason why they wanted to call a second council, second Vatican council, is because the first Vatican council was abruptly ended prematurely because of political events in Italy. Uh, they decreed you know, papal infallibility and so forth, but the, the, the First Vatican Council really needed to round that out with a deeper ecclesiology and so on, and it was never done. And so a lot of theologians and many popes said, you know, we really do need to call another council to complete the first one. So that that's sort of reason number one, and and John the twenty third, I don't know, just woke up one day and decided, well, you know what, I maybe maybe because I'm old and I'm not going to be here very long, maybe I am the guy to that, that call this council. But the, John the twenty third actually thought the council would be very short, last about three months, and everybody would go home. I mean, how wrong he was. Uh, he really he thought that. That's what he thought. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so, th- but then the second reason, by the time we get to say nineteen sixty or so, I mean, there had been an absolute and stunning revolution in Catholic theology, revolution in a good sense, in the, in the 20th century, especially between the two wars and the post-war period. I mean, I, I would argue this, that the mid part of the 20th century represented the full flowering of, uh, and, uh, of Catholic theology in a way that the church had not seen since the great medieval scholastics, you know, of, of Aquinas, Bonaventure, those guys. Uh, every historical period has its theologians, of course, but then there are the- periods that are just great. And the mid-20th century produced some just astounding theological insights and giants. Pius XII began to recognize this and, you know, much loved by all the, the radical traditionists, Pius XII, but he wrote some encyclicals like Mystici Corporis Christi, Divinio Flanti Spiritu, that really moved the needle in the direction Of of uh, this revolution in Catholic thinking, and that too then called for the need for a new council to build on that theological edifice that had been erected in order to reform the church so as to better evangelize the modern world. So to me, that's the second reason for calling the council was the absolute need to re-evangelize the world in light of everything that had happened in the 20th century, uh, taking great use of the resources that had developed in the middle part of the 20th century in Catholic theology. So it was a missionary council, a council of evangelization, which is why it also, something near and dear to my heart, the universal call to holiness for the laity, because the council fathers understood this time it cannot be a clericalist revolution. We're not going to get discounts this and discalse that, you know, we're going to actually need a discount laity. Let's put it that way.
0: So, okay. There's a, f- yeah, a few thoughts going through my head here. Um, one is and it, what's interesting about, I agree with you about the, our feel theolo- what, what was going on in theology at the time is just such a, we, we don't realize we're so close to it still how, how great it was. And what's amazing is how much, how it kind of pops up out of, what I call like theological and philosophical poverty in the church. I still remember reading about Newman's time in Rome and how much he, <laughs> he didn't have very nice things to say about the education in Rome at the time. It was just so far beneath the like, just basic good education that he had experienced in Oxford. Uh, and that this was the kind of climate and in, intellectual climate in the church. It it refused to have the, it, re- it refused to have intellectual charity to see where this where there might be seeds of truth that have gone astray. And, and it's something I really like I love about Ratzinger. He's always finding like, seeds of truth in thinkers. Yeah, like well, he's absolutely. saying nothing, you're not there's there's always truth somewhere. It might be greatly twisted, but and so it's really amazing. It comes out of this poverty, don't you think? Like that's what a like to it, 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 me, it's like it must be God's grace. <laughs> it, it must did, be working Because
1: uh, that was one of the things the council saw was the great poverty of Catholic neo-scholastic theology, the need to make use of these new resources in theology in order to overcome that poverty, because it was there. I'm I'm reading the memoirs of the philosopher Joseph Pieper, and he came to the United Mm -hmm. States to teach for a while, and he was commenting on the absolute absence of Catholic theology in most Catholic universities. which was astounding to him at the time. I mean, there was a lot going on in European universities, but very little in American universities. So Americans, I don't think, fully, completely comprehend uh, the profundity of the theology that was going on in Europe, in France and Germany in particular, but also England and Italy. Uh, And this is one of the things that spurred that Council on to make use of the reason. Now, the Council, obviously, we could talk about this, was not implemented properly post conciliar mm-hmm. wise and, you know in a lot of ways it was hijacked and derailed I know that's a boilerplate narrative but I think it's true
0: mm-hmm. so I want to do you want to engage that but you know you had another point there's two other points you mentioned earlier that I want to really kind of bump jump on quickly is about evangelization um, because I think you're dead right this is the thing I've noticed like if you just do a an overview of the mention of mission and evangelization in magisterial documents, Pre and post Vatican II, you see the revolution happen. Yeah, there are actual encyclicals all about the notion of evangelization and mission, et cetera. Like Paul VI's statement, you know, the Church by her nature is missionary. This stuff just didn't exist. The idea of mission prior to the Council was to go to third world countries, to pagan lands, yes. because we figured almost like, well, no, the West. Like, and it also shows. Uh, we perhaps too identified with the West or the world to understand um, that actually we we had actually lost the West in many ways. Ratzinger brings this up in a 1958 article about catechesis in Germany. Uh, it was already it was already falling apart before the Council. Like well, people are, so are you like-
1: are you talking about yeah. Ratzinger's famous 1958 article about the new paganism in the Church?
0: Yep. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. That was a bomb. That was that just dropped like a bomb.
0: And, and I cite.
1: Uh, go ahead. I
0: was going to say that came from his pastoral experience. This is from him before yeah. going off to studies again of just doing catechesis in the parish and just saying, "We've we've lost it. We've lost the
1: church." <laughs> oh yeah, you know when I get into conversations with some of these more radical traditionalists, and I I, I do that I do that a lot. Uh, they 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 have this romanticized nostalgia for the pre-Vatican II church that is just unwarranted, and I cite. Rotzinger's article in 58 is evidence of that already in 1958 before the council. Here's Rotzinger saying there's a rot in the church, a deep Mm -hmm. rot uh, that, that is undermining the very foundations of the church. And you have to also ask yourself the question, if the Preconciliar church was so healthy, why did it collapse almost immediately?
0: This is, this is the point Roland brings up in her book on culture and the Thomas tradition, uh, which is her doctoral thesis, I believe. And, and um, that, the whole problem uh, uh, is that everything, all the problems that came out of the council are actually rooted. Who were the people who, who implemented all the radical weird stuff? The neo-scholastics.
1: Yes. They oh, were yes, the same people. Absolutely.
0: It's there. It's there.
1: Um, the thicket, Theologians and most lay people had a very forensic, legalistic understanding of the faith. And so their mentality was <clears throat> all these things are just rules. And so now they've changed the rules. So great. Now we, so the church says no mandatory meat eating on non-meat on friday and uh, but please choose a a different substitutionary penance well of course nobody did Mm -hmm. you know they just got rid of they got rid of meatless fridays and i know that's a trivial example but it is an example that sticks out in my mind is is absolutely paradigmatic of what happened after the council it was the neo-scholastic mentality of a kind of top-down forensic catholicism that collapsed and then eventuated in, in a kind of liberal Catholicism that was just an appeasement to the culture.
0: So you mentioned and I think you you might even agree. I don't maybe you will maybe want about how because um, you mentioned also like you loved one of the things you love about the Vatican II is, is the universal call to holiness. Yes. And 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 especially for the laity. Like yes. how we need, a like you said, we almost need like a discalced laity. Um, would you say that this is an area that's still like, because we we want to, you know, it's good to talk about like how it's not been implemented properly. Like what does that look like? What does is, what is that universal call look like? And how, what does what does the laity look like in the church today? What is the council saying about this? And where does this still need to kind of be encouraged and implemented? It's a big question, but.
1: <laughs> it's a huge question. And it's an unbelievably difficult question. And I can't tell you how many emails I have gotten. Uh, more emails from readers of my blog than anything else, which is you talk about holiness all the time uh, for the lay people. What does it look like? What does that mean? As one of my blog titles was called Five Kids and a Golden Doodle. Some former students of mine who live in Florida have five kids and a golden doodle. And, and the husband wrote to me and said, yeah, hey chap, your thing is great on Dorothy Day and all this stuff, but come on, I have five kids and a golden doodle. So how do I live this? And it's not an easy question. Because our entire culture and our entire society is geared towards a very particular way of life, which is an emphasis on you know, affluence, material well-being, uh, security, these sorts of things. And it's, it's very, very difficult to get out of that sort of trap, that what I call the bourgeois mind. Uh, and and I, I, I have to be non-judgmental, right? I, I don't want to sit on my high horse and say oh, I'm a Catholic worker, and I think everybody should live like Dorothy Day. I know that's impossible, but mm-hmm. it means this: simplicity of life more than anything. Simplicity of life, which means if you don't need it, don't buy it. That I mean, I know that, that just don't buy. It. Don't give into the consumeristic impulse to buy things you don't need. Live a simple life. If you want to get a new TV, get that small one. Don't get the huge 78 inch, you know, screen TV. You want a new car? Get a cheap car. Get an inexpensive car, and so on. Uh, I, I know those are mundane examples, but I think that's where it starts. But then, most importantly, prayer. You have. I. I don't think. I feel this in my own life. So I'm. I'm a leper talking to lepers. Most lay people, and I. I think a lot of priests do not have a proper prayer life. Mm-hmm. And if you want to see what holiness looks like, it's going to look like a person. Who prays, constantly prays. And their whole life, therefore, becomes a vocational prayer where you begin to see what you're doing in life in terms of vocational mission. I think this is critical. Doesn't necessarily mean rearranging the deck chairs of your life, doesn't necessarily mean a whole different formal structure to your life, but an internal transformation towards prayer, towards mysticism, towards, towards God, on a day, de- you know, the practice of the presence of God in your life. Uh, I think that is the reading of scripture, I think, is something that most lay people don't do. Scripture study, prayer, these kinds of things. Uh, And then the rest will follow. Then God will speak to your heart and tell you, like he did with my wife and I, you know, now you need to leave your nets and follow me. You need to leave Mm -hmm. your comfortable suburban home and go and buy a complete horrible little tiny ramshackle farmhouse (laughs) if you've seen our farmhouse you realize (laughs) it's a complete disaster it was when we bought it too it's what we could afford but still but i i'm rambling now because it's a difficult question to answer
0: it it is tough but i think and i think in some ways what you're saying there is not much different between what a secular priest's life should look like and what a family's life should look like. Right. I think actually I think in some ways this is where the gift of secular priesthood really lies. It's like, yeah, we don't take promises of poverty, we don't make vows of poverty, but uh, at the same time, how do I live? It's a question I kind of constantly ask myself my, because and I was uh, someone was just asking today actually on Twitter, a priest was like that uh, a guy became Catholic and then a priest because he saw a priest see the world differently and live in the world differently. And, and he's like, well, how do we do this? And I'm like, I think we as priests just too often whether we have actually bought into the consumerist mindset ourselves. Oh yeah. And we don't realize, for example, how much disposable income we might have compared to families. Um, we don't realize how much free time we might have compared to families. And again, it's not, you know, they're not the same thing and they're not going to be the same thing, but how do you live your life in that? And it's something like I continue to ask myself. I actually got rid of my house cleaner when I got to my parish, not because she doesn't deserve a job or anything like that. But I was like, why can't I clean my own house?
1: <laughs> yeah. And I, I also, you know? think we, I, this is all true. And we're all yeah. to a certain extent, uh, you know, I still am. We're caught in this trap because we live in this culture and you gotta make the best of it as you can. But what we need to start doing, like I said, prayer and so forth, but to think vocationally, to think in terms of Christological mission and therefore to start recognizing, let's take the example of parents with children, just to begin recognizing Mm -hmm. the fact that parenthood, the choice to have children as such is an act of holiness. And represents in many, many, many cases a slow rolling crucifixion uh, that, yep. <laughs> that you have for example I mean I'm I'm uh, uh, I'm one of five children uh, but I had when uh, in, in the early in the 60s early 70s I had a, a sister who was born with a very severe heart defect mm-hmm. uh, lived for six six short years uh, a very the life filled with suffering medical medical problems left and right uh, might required my parents constant constant attention and then after uh surgery in 1971 she sadly passed away and 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 so i you know as a young man i was in sixth grade when my sister died i i didn't fully appreciate my parents until i became a parent myself and realized that my parents had to keep going for their four other kids but they must have been dying a slow death inside nothing worse than losing a child and not only that the, the absolute crucifixion of taking care of her for six years, right. uh, sitting up with her all night and so on. And that's an extreme example of you know a sick child, but how many parents, how many parents make these sacrifices on a daily basis? And we need yeah. to start recognizing as, as to teach parents, to teach families, to see those sacrifices as holy and as part of their Christological mission.
0: And, and that's part of the sacrament of marriage itself. Like, this is the thing. The whole point of the sacrament of marriage is to make Christ's love for the church present within the context of the family. Like, this is the whole. Like, so that grace is there. Like, yes. Like, I, you hear it all the time from parents. Well, I, you know, I didn't do this perfectly enough. I'm like, yeah, you didn't. And you're never going to. It's, yep. And that's okay. That's why you actually have the grace of the sacrament there. Christ makes actually the places where you can't do something is precisely the place for Christ. That's why Christ gives you the sacrament so he can work in those places for you. Um, but that we need to trust this and like that. It's not you don't need to go off on some radical mission often as a family, but just to live, live the joy and difficulty of family as it's given to you each and every day, that those are the moments that the incarnation is really present to you. Uh, just this past Saturday, we had a baptism in our parish for a family. It's their sixth kid and um, got a deacon to come in actually, cause they'd asked me to be the godfather. So we got the deacon to come in to do the baptism. And um, it was a really joy. It was all these families, some of them not Catholic. and And as I went to the house afterwards, after I finished mass, it was a huge celebration. It was joyful, right? And, you know, and, and difficult, you know, kids are crying and all this stuff, but all these families there, and the dad said to me, we celebrate our baptisms more than we celebrate our birthdays. And I want the kids to realize that the sacraments... And the church's liturgy brings life, and so we celebrate this on purpose. And I was thinking, wow, you haven't even read Joseph Peeper, and this is exactly <laughs> what it's talking about right. Um, yes, that absolutely. was beautiful. I was like, you're living. This is it. That that's holiness right there. That's chasing it down, and that the cross is present, but that Christ is there with you in this. And 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 the whole thing you said about prayer—that's so huge. Like, it's something I really I'm going to be working on more in my parish because um, when I hear confessions, this is for me the thing that lacks the most in people's lives. They do not know how to pray.
1: Right, right.
0: But we've done a lousy job as parishes teaching them how to pray.
1: And I think that's true. And uh, I know I didn't get that formation growing up at all in the 60s or 70s. And What's sad about it is this, is that a lot of people, Catholics, but other people in general, are absolutely thirsting for a deeper spirituality. And they mm. drift off to this, you know, New Age, this, spirituality, that, and, mm. and they find in other movements a kind of mystical uh, bent that they, they're not finding in the church, and yet the church has the deepest <laughs> mystical tradition imaginable, you know? Uh, it, it's just incredible, uh, the, the, the deep, deep monastic mystical tradition in the church that we could be utilizing to, to draw people into the church. People are drawn to the mystical. Uh, yeah. They're drawn to the prayerful, to the supernatural. They want that. And this is something that I think needs to get emphasized too. Holiness is a supernatural event. Prayer is a supernatural event. And I think all too often in the past 50 years of the church's life, maybe even before, it hasn't been emphasized enough that encountering the sacraments, encountering the church in all of our ways, encountering the church and in, in, in Christ in prayer, is a supernatural reality. And we have downplayed, I think, the vertical dimension of our faith, these supernatural things that happen to us uh, on a daily basis that we just explain away naturalistic. I'm not talking about miracles. I'm just talking about everyday things that are absolutely supernatural and we just overlook it. I
0: wanna expand on that point in a second here. um, because I think it's it's vital because I think it's especially vital to what the council was was trying to get at, you know, but like one more kind of practical thing on this whole question with families like so then and maybe just kind of bring what you're just saying into it. Like, so what what do you think if you had your ideal parish, what do you think a parish and we know there's no such thing as the ideal parish, but uh, <laughs> they are dreams they are non-existent, but what do you think parishes could do to support this?
1: Uh, that That's a very, very good question. I think one of the very first things, if I were a priest, and I'm not, I, I didn't cut it, <laughs> uh, I, I would do my very best first to identify the, the, the that 5% core group of parishioners who are deeply, deeply serious about uh, prayer life, mysticism, uh, the path of holiness, the cruciform nature of our existence, and to train them up to be lay evangelizers within the parish itself in, in various forms, leading this or that study group, that kind of thing. And I, I think that that's that's a start to, to get, I know, I mean, I talked to so many priests, that that's a hard thing to get people to do, to, mm-hmm. to, to volunteer on that level. That's why I said you, you identify that five percent. But then the other thing is this, And I know this might be controversial, I don't know, because parish priests have to deal with their bishops. The liturgy. The liturgy has to exude heaven, When you walk and and the architecture of our churches now you can't do anything about that as a priest you inherit the church you inherit, but I I challenge anyone to say to walk into a European Romanesque or Gothic cathedral or walk into St. Pat's or to to walk in Immaculate Conception there in Newark or whatever and not immediately have your heart lifted up to God from Mm -hmm. the sheer architecture of the place. Now our churches look like cul-de-sacs. These these theatrical churches in the round, stripped bare of everything, uh, very little. Anything that would exude a sense of the sacred, uh, or give off an aura of mysticism, and and then the the liturgy itself. If you if you're in an ugly church, then the next thing you can do you can take that liturgy, and man, you can rev it up into something high church bells and smells. That's and not an answer to everything, but by golly, it's a yeah. start. It's a start. The banality of most liturgies is an atrocious. It's just an abomination. The, the fact of the matter is people are bored with church often, mm-hmm. which is why they leave. They're just bored with it because it doesn't challenge them. It doesn't lift their mind to God, to Christ. It doesn't It doesn't give them that aura of the mystical or the sacred. And I think that is just I know I'm dealing in boilerplate conversation here now, but I think it is so central, so important.
0: I, I I agree with you. I, again, it's interesting, especially I find if you're if you're you know if you're raising up a family and coming to mass on Sundays, you're not just a. I go to. You know, I'm not. You're not just a cultural Catholic most of the time. I find at least in Canada, um, this is a, a choice one has made with their life, and those people who really become a core of a parish, they're the ones who desire this. They want this. Like I on you know I'm new in my parish, but like I love to chant the mass i love chanting it in in, in english and and um you know and explaining the scriptures and like really kind of let's 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 slowly walk through everything here and and encounter christ through this um and to beautify it in these small ways already just these are just natural things i can do without having to cause a stir um and like actually this sunday i I had a i I ran into a family who was visiting from manitoba and just, it was really beautiful. Cause I, I, I taught the masters cause they're a little two year old or just before he's like, maybe just close to two I, after the consecration, he was coming back up the aisle to his, where his parents were. And he genuflected in the middle of the aisle. And I talked to his dad cause it was just yeah. adorable, right? It's just always yeah. adorable to see that is said, he's never done that before. He's never done that before. I was like, wow, that's really cool. But um, the, the parents were just like, thank you for chanting the mass. Thank you for taking the time to draw us into the scriptures you really helped us encounter God today, and I'm like, this is the point.
1: <laughs> and I th- yeah, I think that uh, an- another area. Uh, sometimes it's impossible because it's related to a skill set some priests just don't have. But I I think the homily is extremely important. It's unbelievably important. A priest gets maybe 10 minutes one day a week to reach out to this vast number of people, and yet so many homilies are just so mailed in let's just put it that yeah. way and oh um, my gosh uh, we all have examples in our life where we have heard and i'm sure you are one of these yeah. uh, great preachers uh, astounding preachers men who shake your soul uh from the pulpit because they have taken the time to elevate their homiletics in, in, into a mystical spiritual act part of the liturgy and not simply, here's 10 minutes of a little story I want to tell you that you can take a moral lesson home with you. Right. But that's, that's not going to cut it. Then an emphasis on confession. Uh, I, I think this is one of the great things, tragedies of the modern church. Nobody goes to confession. I mean, I, and I've run into parishes where you have to make an appointment to go to confession. There's no mm-hmm. standard time, which means anonymous confession is basically out the window, which is my canonical right. What message does that send to your parishioners when the priest can't be bothered to be in the box one one hour a week, even that you have to make an appointment? Um, I know some priests have time issues with this, but having confessions available before masses, uh, I I think is whenever I've seen that happen, I see lines of people going to going to confession. And then of course Eucharistic adoration, yeah. and then things like Corpus Christi processions and May crownings and these sorts of things. These are all terribly important in the life of a church. I attend actually, uh, I, I, I attend an Anglican Ordinariate parish in Scranton, Pennsylvania, Father Eric Bergman, mm-hmm. convert from Episcopalian, and he actually has 10 kids, uh, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. But the reason why my wife and I have begun attending this Ordinary, we've been there like four years now, is because of the liturgy and the community. But the yeah. liturgy, I mean, it's ad orientum, there's tons of incense. Uh, you receive com- uh, there's a, a lot of chant with a trained yeah. choir run by a full time choir director. We receive communion kneeling at an altar rail on the tongue via intinction. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lots of incense uh, and you know it's it's just so sacred. It's unbelievable. It, it's it's mind blowing how transformative that is.
0: I think I think Benedict's reason for Anglican or Ch- Chetibus was one that in this tradition we see what the council intended.
1: Yes, yes. This is why I say all the time to people, I attend the Anglican at Parish because in my mind, the Anglican Ordinariate Liturgy is the liturgy Vatican II had in mind, okay? Yeah. In the vernacular, uh, yeah. w- with more dialogue from the congregation, yeah. with prayer said out loud, more congregational singing, a, a greater emphasis on scripture, but nevertheless, all of the formal aspects of the old liturgy are still there. And yeah. and but likewise, the vernacular that is used is an elevated vernacular.
0: Yeah, an elevated. And you can still vernacular. have the common the common prayers like the Sanctus in Latin. Like those those don't have to be eliminated, right? So, oh, well, absolutely. It, it's. It's. I remember the first time. I I remember. I was I was actually still in seminary. I went to an Anglican at mass because we have a small community here in my diocese, and I I, I was just and they were in a small place, and I went to it, and I was just like blown away, I'm like. This is sanct. This is uh, sanctum concilium. Right it sure here. This is. This is it. This is it. This is it. Yeah, this one yeah. intended. So uh, I don't. I want to be also like, conscious of of your time. But I mean, we could talk forever. We'll have to do this again one day too. But um,
1: oh, I'd love to. Two, I can... things,
0: two two quick things I'd like to ask. Um, one is because I want to get back to one thing you brought up earlier that you, you you said about, and we've kind of talked about this already a little bit about the council not being implemented properly. And I agree with you, and something I think listeners are together. listeners of the podcast are used to this <laughs> me saying this. I'm just like, it's it's there. It's just not being implemented. Uh, can you give me are there are there besides liturgy now because we've kind of talked about that, are there other spaces you think that this can that it still needs to be radically implemented that we haven't even begun to scratch the surface?
1: Well, uh, one of them is I've already talked about, like you said, I mean, it's the universal call to holiness. i okay. I think, uh, this is, we've only begun to scratch the surface there, uh, and, and, and a sort of reform of moral theology. Uh, we don't talk a lot about that, but one of the things the Council definitely wanted was a reform of moral theology. We, we tend to focus on all these uh, sexual issues, you know, contraception and, you know, um, sex outside of marriage, all the cohabitation before marriage, which I know is a big pastoral headache. For, for priests preparing people for marriage and all that. We focus on all these things, I guess rightly so. I mean, those are sins mm-hmm. and you know, mm-hmm. you, you right. don't wanna just dismiss ah. them. Um, but on on the other hand, all of it once again remains, and you know this from hearing confessions, legalistic. All right, and and I'm, oh gosh, you know, I, yes. I need to- yes. I, exactly. Oh you're right. All right, you know, I had too many dirty thoughts 10 times. All right, oh, I looked at TV at a, a pretty woman too many times you know, and that kind of stuff, but none of it gets rooted in the deeper life of virtue. Virtue, virtue, virtue. The virtues is what the council had in mind in terms of reforming moral theology. Now, some virtue ethics have been abused to simply say there are no mortal sins, it's just tendencies. We have to look at tendencies, which is what a virtue is, a habit, right? Mm -hmm. But it's all, if you can combine virtue ethics with an emphasis as well on the objective sinfulness of individual acts, uh, then you've got something going. But you have to, those two things, the universal call to holiness and the reform of moral theology are deeply related with one another. Yeah. Because you have to get people to see that their spiritual lives and their moral lives are deeply, deeply interconnected. And I mean, as you know, as a priest too, people in confession, people who go to confession, confess the same damn g- darn sins over and over and over and over again. There's no reflection. <laughs> yeah. There's no real repentance. There's no change because there's no recognition that my root problem is that I have a vice that is undercut a virtue, uh, mm-hmm. and then I need to, uh, I need to change my habitual way of acting and not just using the confessional as a kind of cathartic cleansing once every yeah. month or two,
0: or as a counseling experience. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is not, yeah. this is not therapy. This is not, I always say to people, it's like, they start to explain their sin to me. I'm like, I, I said, I always charitable, but like, please stop. I don't need to hear all the reasons why you did this because often it becomes a way of excusing the sin. Right. right. It's right. like, no, no, you need to, you need to accept concretely that you did this. This is, and that's what you come to confession for. Oh yeah, you know. Oh man, I maybe we should do a whole. We'll do a whole talk about this one day because I think you're you're dead on. Because yeah, you feel like okay. Oh, sin of pride. I'm like, great. What do you mean by that? Like, pride's in everything. That's the whole point of pride. It's in every sin. <laughs> it's yeah. it's. Uh, where is it manifesting itself concretely? But are you investigating your heart? What's where's your attachments? Where like actually one of them. One of the, for me the most beautiful confessions are those people who actually, cause I think this is part of it too. It's bringing the heart into spirituality. Um, yes. Yes. Like heart, heart as a theological locus, right. Like as, as the place of faith. So you have to investigate your heart. You're uh, which means affectivity is a place in our formation. Like this is about like, it's not just our desires are important to talk about. So this is where human formation has a great, and strong oh, yeah. role. And John Paul II was revolutionary in implementing human formation in the seminaries, which I still think is a little lacking. And I think it's like seminaries aren't sure what to quite do with this, and they just psychologize everything. But like, you know, but it was a great advance that John Paul II made there.
1: The theology of the body, one of the most ignored aspects of it is this, this focus on the affective sphere of yeah. of our of our embodied lives. Uh, once again, the, the neo-scholastic manuals of moral theology was so essentialized, so abstract, so rooted in the intellect and will and all these sorts of things, and utterly ignored the human element of our affective dimension. It's one of the reasons why people have such a hard time understanding the church's sexual ethic, because it seems yeah. so unattached from the affective dimension of our lives. So, for example, you take the issue of homosexuality, uh, which is obviously a, a big burning issue in the church. The church just comes across as a set of rules that have have to be followed yeah. and so on, and you you know uh, everybody knows people that have gay friends and whatever, and you and you see them happy with their significant others, and so what what what's really lacking is the church understanding the reason why people have shifted their mentality on these views wrongly, I think, but shifted their views is because they're paying attention to the affective sphere of their friends and loved ones who have expressed feelings towards them about what it is like to live as as a homosexual person in the church. Uh, And those feelings never, ever get incorporated into a higher mystical call to holiness and and spiritual life. Uh, Then then you get the James Martins of the church running around, who I think are doing Mm. no good to the church. Uh, You know, uh, so anyway, you get my point there. It's either rigid rigid rules on the right or or a kind of laissez-faire on the left.
0: And just briefly, Ratzinger brings us up too about how this whole notion of like, he actually says, he actually connects us to Mary. Affectivity has a rightful place in the spiritual life, and Mary shows us this, and that we don't, we, in looking at what the church is, don't see that sufficiently, and we ignore it. And it's just so vital because, like, yeah, you like, so there's, um, yeah, uh, there's so much to say there, but I want to, I want, uh, we'll, we'll maybe stop it there because I want to ask you one more question. And be, sure. Dorothy Day, like, like what, what is it that inspired you? Like why? Okay, you said you felt this call to do this. First, what is a Catholic worker farm? I think a lot of people don't even know that people I think have this idea of who Dorothy Day is. But what's a Catholic worker farm? And how is this being lived out in your life now? And, 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 and um, how, how is it that you heard that call?
1: Well, for starters, I think I—I don't know if it was our pre-conversation or if I have mentioned it here, but uh, when I was at the tail end of my teaching at Desales University, like the last three or four years, I—I yeah. I just became in as maybe aging had part of it t- to do too. As I realized, I was treading water. I was just spinning my wheels spiritually. I was living a very comfortable middle class existence in, in the suburbs and a nice house in the woods and taking trips to Rome and eating at fine restaurants and, and all the while enjoying the easy, comfortable life of a fully tenured college professor with an easy teaching schedule and so on. And I just felt like I wasn't being challenged spiritually. My life condition, I, I was not, in other words, virtuous enough, heroic enough, or strong enough to overcome the outward objective structure of my life. And I realized that if I were going to become a holier person, uh, that I had to change that objective structure. And I had always been enamored of, of Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker Movement uh, because of her vision. And uh, like I said, uh, my wife and I came to this independently. We just, and, and a former student of ours, Father John Gribowich, now a priest in Brooklyn, he, uh, he came to it too and said, okay, let's start a Catholic Worker farm. And so we did. We moved to this farm, small 10-acre thing. We raise sheep. My wife teaches people how to spin wool, uh, process wool, and so on. We do a lot of things there. But anyway, what did the origins of the Catholic Worker Farm go all the way back to the 30s. A lot of people know about Dorothy Day, but very few people about know about the co-founder of the movement, Peter Morin, uh, mm-hmm. a, French, a French peasant immigrant to the United States, uh, a sort of self-taught man, brilliant in his own way. He was the man who gave Dorothy Day her intellectual theological vision. And Peter Morin was the idea, was the guy who decided that it wasn't enough to have soup kitchens in the cities. You needed to have an agrarian element to the Catholic Worker Movement. Peter Morin, I guess you could say, was a back-to-the-lander homesteader uh, before his time who saw the great spiritual benefit in a return to the land. It's not for everybody. I'm not saying everybody needs to give up their houses in the city and move, but... In, in the vast movement towards urbanization in our society and the depopulation of our rural areas, as rural, specifically rural, something has been lost and it is the rhythms of nature, the rhythms of life. And that's what we're trying to capture on our farm. More than growing food and raising animals, it's to bring people to the farm. To We're Benedictine Oblates, we have a chapel. On We say the Liturgy of the Hours, it's an icon chapel. We say Liturgy of the Hours. We bring people in. We pray with them. We sit and we talk. We have meals. We, we, we you know, do all kinds of things along a, what, what Peter Moran called the roundtable discussions or clarification of thought, which sounds faintly Marxist, but it wasn't. Uh, I always chuckle at that. Clarification of thought. It sounds like a re-education camp or something, but it, it's not. So that's what we decided to do. We didn't want to do a soup kitchen in the city. We wanted to move out to the land. And give people an opportunity to share in that mm-hmm. experience, and to teach them certain artisanal skills. That was Peter Moran's vision too. Mm-hmm. In learning an artisanal skill like spinning wool, for example, or mm-hmm. or make or making bread, uh, mm-hmm. something you know, on an open hearth, that kind of thing. Those are lost skills that have a tactile element to them, that is yeah. spiritually beneficial. But anyway, that's it in a nutshell. Cool. But I also so, want to say this uh, because yeah. it relates to our earlier conversation, which is that Dorothy Day, one of her things was in terms of the universal call to holiness is that holiness had been overly clericalized and too neat of a distinction had been made in the church between uh, the life of the commandments, what lay people were expected to live, and the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience, which religious were expected to live. And her point was the Sermon on the Mount is meant for everybody, not just priests and nuns. And the evangelical councils, as Balthazar himself points out in his book, The Christian State of Life, are meant for everybody, meant yeah. for everybody. And and that yeah. was one of the things that attracted me to Dorothy Day was the radicality of that vision that we are all meant to live the Sermon on the Mount.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I, there's a family I'm really good friends with, and they, they're homeschooling family and, and um, seven kids, and they were talking about their house, and, and they wanted to add an expansion on it but it was really beautiful as they decided to do it, but not because for any selfish reasons. And it's actually primarily not used just for them. It was so they could host families and friends yes. over. Right. And I was like, that's like, that's it. That's living that holiness. And that's living what Dorothy's day is saying there. It's, this like it's, this it's, it's, it's living out the councils of we're sacrificing our hard earned money. Yeah. We're going to benefit from this too. Obviously we're going to have more space, et cetera, but we're not for us first. We're doing it for our mission as a family, which is to host people, to gather them in, to give people a place uh, to visit, comfortably so they have a place to be and, I, and that's so beautiful and it's so it'd be yeah this yeah oh man we could talk forever <laughs> we could yeah, talk forever <laughs>
1: that, that was peter moran's vision right there
0: yeah well this has been great been so great to just finally talk to you uh even though digitally great, right now, uh, this has been great. And I just want to thank our listeners for listening. We'll we'll do stuff like this once in a while again. Like we're on our bi-weekly usual once with me and Father Anthony. But either Father Anthony or myself will have guests on once in a while just to have conversations with people to share this with you all. So thank you, Dr. Chap, for, for being with us. And thank you to thank our listeners. And we will see you guys next week.